0: It is so good to be with you again. We continue in our Comfort and Courage series in the book of Philippians, this time looking at the topic of suffering. We're going to be reading Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from god for it has been granted to you that for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw i had and now hear that i still have okay paul starts off by calling them to a lifestyle worthy of their new life in Christ. And specifically, he charges them to stand firm in spirit and minds. That means in heart and head, in emotions and in thought process. Not frightened in any way by their opponents. Their opponent was persecution Our primary opponent at the moment is the pandemic of the coronavirus and its various social and economic side effects And persecution, pandemic and other forms of suffering can cause anxiety, fright to rise in our hearts and minds The word that's translated frightened actually denotes the unstoppable stampede of wild horses And you may already have some uh, wild anxious thoughts beginning to go on in your head and your heart How can we close the gate on that stampede? Well, the answer is to increasingly receive Jesus, the Prince of Peace, isn't it? And one of the main ways that Jesus uh, brings his peace to us is through helping us better understand and believe his word specifically in the area of suffering And to help us be firmer in our hearts and heads and the way we think about suffering and to help us suffer in a christ-like manner i want to launch from this passage in philippians where paul introduces the topic of suffering he doesn't say too much about it but he introduces it and i want to go to various places in the bible that talk about suffering to help us in this regard and i've got three headings to help us the first heading is philosophically speaking what are our God and suffering options? Secondly, theologically speaking, what does the Bible teach about God and suffering? And thirdly, speaking pastorally, how then shall we live? Now, a quick disclaimer Suffering and God, it's, it's a philosophically and theologically complex issue It's been debated through the centuries And Today, I'm not going to be able to eliminate the question mark in your mind about these things But I do help to reduce it to a manageable size and I trust that God will help us in that today Okay, straight into heading one. Philosophically speaking, what are our God and suffering options? I think we have four options. No God, bad God, weak God, or good and all-powerful God. Let's touch on each of them. First up, no God. In view of suffering and evil in the world, isn't it easier just to believe that there is not a God? Counterintuitively, I don't think so. I, I think that the existence of suffering and evil actually argues more for the existence of God than against the existence of God. So reflecting back on his atheist days, C.S. Lewis said that his argument against the existence of God was that the world seemed so unjust and cruel, but then he said, where did I get this idea of unjust and cruel from? He was saying that you can't have an innate moral code without an external moral law giver and if not from Creator God, where does our innate moral code, our sense of right and wrong come from? Morality is unlikely to be something that grows with the evolutionary process because the evolutionary instinct is dog-eat-dog. But that's not what we feel when we're confronted with suffering or injustice, is it? So when a genocide happens or suffering like a pandemic, we instinctively respond, no, wrong, unnatural. Not, oh, it's just natural selection, no problem. So I certainly conclude that the the presence of evil and suffering points more to a God than to no God. Secondly, what about the bad God option? British actor Stephen Fry said in 2015, bone cancer in children, what's that about? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? The God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, an utter maniac, totally selfish. What kind of God would do that? Well, the answer is, according to this logic, that a bad God would do that. If God is able to stop suffering but doesn't, he must be bad, right? All-powerful, maybe, but bad. I think there's three logical rebuttals to that position. First, if God is bad, how come so much good happens? I mean, I know a lot of bad happens in the world, but if God was fundamentally bad, creator God fundamentally bad, then wouldn't the world be badder than it actually is? Secondly if God is bad as we've already said Where do we get our universal innate sense of morality from? And third most strikingly if God is bad Why did he come in the form of Jesus and suffer himself on a cross to make a way for all suffering to end? In the future that doesn't seem to be how a bad God would behave so no God Bad God, I don't think those add up. What about number three, weak God? So God is nice maybe, but he's weak. Proponents of this position suggest that God's hands are tied by various things such as universal laws. That's the watchmaker worldview where God made the world, he wound it up and he walked away saying natural, physical and spiritual laws that I created are now running the show. I've delegated my authority to them and this might mean you suffer from time to time. There's nothing I can do about that. But I do still love you. Uh, Others think that Satan uh, binds God's hands. Uh, This is the boxing uh, worldview where God and Satan are slugging it out in the ring, uh, neither displaying clear domination over the other, each winning different rounds. And, And man, you just hope that your patch of trouble happens during one of the rounds that God wins. Third, people think that uh, God's hands are tied by our lack of faith. uh, That our lack of faith can stop God and thus absolve him from blame for suffering. Uh, Some churches adopt this position and they're overstating faith to the point where our lack of faith can actually stop God from acting. Sure, the Bible speaks of how important faith is, but it's not ultimately going to stop a sovereign God from acting. It's not going to tie his hands. So I conclude certainly that the weak God theory is a valiant attempt by some Christians to get God off the hook for evil and suffering. But surely weak God is actually an oxymoron, like dry water. He's either God or he's not. You can't have a God who's weak. God must be God. Which brings us to the last option, and that is a good, all-powerful God. And this is actually what the Bible teaches, so it segs into our second heading, which is theologically speaking, what does the Bible say about God and suffering? The Bible teaches that God is both good and all-powerful. I want to show you some scriptures in this regard. So, God is good. Deuteronomy 32.4 All his ways are just. He does no wrong. Upright and just is he. And Psalm 45.7 God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He's a good God. What about God being powerful, all-powerful? Well, Isaiah 46.9 46.9 says, I am God, there is none like me, my purpose will stand, I do all that I please. Ephesians 1.11, he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's fully powerful as we shall see here, Psalm 135.6, the Lord does whatever he pleases, in the heavens and on the earth. 1 Timothy 6.15 speaks of God as the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he's loving, he's powerful. Now here's the kicker. The Bible teaches that God is fully loving and fully powerful, even in the face of evil and suffering. Exodus 21.13 says, Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place that I will designate. The the point here is that suffering and even evil, intentional or by mistake, can happen within a sovereign, loving, all-powerful God's purview. Lamentations 3.38 Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that good and bad come? 1 Peter 4.19 So then those who suffer according to God's will Shows us that suffering, again, can happen inside God's will Uh, Bruce Ware says that nothing happens in all creation outside of God's say-so Not one atom, despot, or demon can do anything outside our loving, sovereign God's ultimate say so. So much for philosophy, so much for theology, such helpful theology. But where does that leave us in terms of how we should live? Heading number three, how then shall we live? First, live certain of God's good character. When the disciples were caught in a storm on the lake and Jesus was asleep in the boat, they cried out to him, don't you care that we are drowning? That's illustrative, isn't it, of how a storm of suffering can cause us to doubt uh, the integrity of God. And the verses we've just looked at about God being all-powerful and also all-loving these to reassure us right to the core of our beings that he is a good God. He sent Jesus to die in your place. He, he, if there's any doubt in your mind about the goodness of God, think on the cross of Jesus. Uh, secondly, live with a sane view of your brain. Um, Isaiah 55 speaks about God's ways being higher than our ways. So there's a gap between me uh, me and God and you and God. And part of the job description of not being God is that we don't get to understand, certainly in this life, all the things that God understands. And uh, think for a moment, out of everything that is to know, how much do you think you and I know? Maybe let's round it up to 1% is it not possible that in the 99 percent of all the things we don't know there exists a good reason for a good loving uh, all-powerful god to permit evil and suffering even though we're not aware of that reason i think there is uh, thirdly going back now to philippians chapter one where we started live together paul urged them to stand side by side Together and one of the one of the best ways of getting through suffering is Community and I do want to encourage you friends in this season of isolation. It can be so difficult uh, For us. some some are in families and have community around them, but some who are uh, alone It can be particularly challenging and I do want to encourage us to lean in not just to the Lord But to one another uh, through the various forms of social media standing together thirdly Uh, Sorry, fourthly, live comfortable with conflicts. Again, where we started in Philippians chapter 1, Paul spoke about the conflict that he and they were involved in. That was particular to persecution, but it does make the point that this age we live in is not paradise. It's not utopia. It is an era of conflict here on earth this age this dispensation 1 corinthians 15 24 paul says the end will come when christ has destroyed all opposing authorities for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet did you catch that christ is reigning but there are opposing authorities in play in this era that we live in when he returns will be the end of all opposing authorities no more sin sickness suffering and death But now this is an era where there are some opposing authorities still in play, and we feel that conflict. In the uh, TV series, Band of Brothers, great scene when one of the American paratroopers complains to his commanding officer. But sir, we're surrounded. The commanding officer says, you're a paratrooper. You're supposed to be surrounded. You and I are soldiers of Christ living in this fallen age. We are supposed to be surrounded by suffering. We won't, by God's kindness, always experience suffering, but there will be seasons that we're surrounded by it, and that is appropriate, friends, for the age that we live in. Number five, live mindful of God. And I'm particularly thinking here, for those of us who are still exploring the Christian faith, as I know some of us are, God often uses temporary suffering to get our attention, I'm thinking of Mark chapter two, when the four friends carried their paralytic friends to Jesus and lowered him through the roof, paralyzed. And Jesus's first words to him were, "Son." What do you think he's going to say next? Be healed, because that's what is needed. Jesus's words are, "Son, your sins are forgiven." that's a picture of how God often uses a physical trauma, suffering, to get our attention in terms of our spiritual sickness of disease, which is ultimately much more serious than any temporary suffering that we will experience. So is it not actually a kindness of God to use some temporary pain, some ter- temporary calamity to get our attention that we might be averted of the eternal calamity uh, of... A, An eternity spent without him. Number six, live mindful of heaven. Dostoevsky said, in the world's finale, something so precious will come to pass that it will comfort all resentments, atone for all crimes and justify all that has happened. In Revelation 21, Jesus, who's seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. He will wipe away every tear we spoke at length last time about heaven and the glories of heaven and how we're to look forward to heaven and how actually death for the christ follower is actually even better than life although we're to pursue life on earth with everything in us but i do want to say again in the context of suffering suffering causes us to lift our gaze to that future age when there will be no suffering and it is helpful in that regard Uh, to help us live for that great day and live with eternity in mind. And finally, don't waste this season of Corona. Because seasons of stress, suffering, difficulty, the Bible teaches are actually seasons that are uniquely suited to us knowing God in a deeper way. I'm thinking of uh, King David who said yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil why because thou art with me there's a closeness of God to sufferers in the book of Isaiah God says when you walk through the water when you walk through the fire I will be with you and that actually happens To Daniel's three friends. We find out in the book of Daniel uh, chapter 3 verse 23 The king was looking at these three friends who were in this fiery furnace. They were being persecuted for their faith And the king says weren't there three men that we threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods So it seems that Jesus himself had come to these three sufferers in their furnace of suffering and he stood shoulder to shoulder with them. It is a great privilege to be in the furnace of suffering and to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, the fourth man. When God is with us in the blaze, we're not consumed, we're refined. Our hearts are not wrecked, but they're warmed. The closeness of God in seasons of suffering. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples in the boats, a different time from the one when Jesus was sleeping in the boat, but they were caught in the middle of the lake and the wind was against them. Contrary to them, they were straining at the oars, we're told, and in the fourth watch of the night, late into the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the water. Jesus comes to those who are straining at the oars of life, the wind is contrary, he comes to them in the darkest hour of the night. Maybe that's what uh, Samuel Rutherford had in mind when he famously said, I accept being put into the cellar of suffering, for it is, that it is there that the great king keeps his choice wine. Maybe it's what Charles Spurgeon had in mind when he said, Those who dive into the sea of affliction Come up carrying the most precious of pearls My mind when we're talking about suffering Invariably goes to job and the book of job who in a book of about 40 chapters spends most of them suffering suffering terribly considerable loss and uh, throughout the book his friends and so on, you know, question why is God doing this and Job and Job's Job's wife. And the book reaches a climax towards the end when God speaks to him at last. After being essentially silent for the whole book, God speaks to him. And as the reader, we think that God is going to explain why Job suffered. But God doesn't. Instead, he talks about himself. The why doesn't comfort, the who does comfort. Here's some of the things that God says to Job right at the end of the book. He says, Job, brace yourself like a man and I will question you. Were you there Job when I laid the earth's foundations did you send job lightning bolts on their way Do they report to you saying here we are do you job know where light and dark reside surely you know <laughs> you've lived so many years job can you pull in the crocodile with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Job, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, friends, we know we owe God nothing. The big mystery is not why bad things sometimes happen to us. The big mystery is why does God let anything good ever happen to us? And focusing not on the why, but on the who, it enables us to live with a a reverence and an awe and a peace in the Lord, and it will keep us from entitlement and lead us into worship increasingly let's do that now together
1: when peace like a-